Greetings, this is The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things narrative, story, and publishing. I'm Dean Karpowitz. I'm Trey Bourne. And I'm Sarah Willis. Today on the show, our best reads of 2020. And I want to start by clarifying, (laughs) since we, the three of us did read many books over the course of this year, we didn't find any that were published in the year 2020 that we would have called <laughs> the best of what we were reading. One of mine was published in the end of 2019 and I'm rounding it. So I think I'm the winner. I want you to crown me. Yeah, I, I was going to say, <laughs> you already have a crown of that <laughs> year things. Um, I was going to say that I did look at uh, the Hugo winner for, tw- for 2020. And I read and loved both the Arcady Martin novel, Memory Called Empire, and we interviewed her. And this is how you lose the time war as well. And we're going to interview both of those authors. Well, I'll tell you, in all fairness to me, uh, I, one of my books was in 2019, but I was shocked when I did a little research today and realized that another one of my books was in 2008. <laughs> <laughs> I think I win the loser. I no, the no, no. The loser, 2008. No, I think I think one of mine is 2003. 2003. Dean, would you like to know how old I was in 2003? No, I would. I don't want to know. Let let the world let the internet know. I believe I was 13. Oh my! Oh my god! (laughs) Oh man! Wow! Yeah, I'm too. You're welcome Um, for that. Yeah. Thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, I really don't want to hear anything like that ever again. Ever. Your reminders of your mortality and this our year right. 2020, the slow march towards death. Especially after this year, I know death is on the horizon. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't want to be reminded of it. Usually the New York Times, I check the New York Times, I get the New York Times on Sundays, so I get the book review. And then one, the one, one week they'll put out the top 100 books fiction and nonfiction of the year. And they always have the top 10. And I usually have read and enjoyed at least three or four of those. Like last year, um, our book club even read the Ted Chang book, Exhalation, mm-hmm. which was amazing. It was a phenomenal book. Like this year, there was nothing. There were, I, I mean, I didn't even recognize many of those books. And I sort of, I mean, I kind of frequently look for, you know, stuff to read in the New York Times and elsewhere. I looked in the New Yorker too, and, and all 10 of those, I'd heard of four or five of them, but they didn't even hit my radar. With me, I, I would at least feel, in years past, I would feel guilty for not reading the books in New York Times, but like this year, I didn't even care. I didn't, I don't even think I looked at it. I'll say for me, I'm going to talk about three books, two of them, um, were a result of being in sort of lockdown mode and finding things, first of all, that in some ways reflected my circumstances as dismal as they often were. And in other cases, helped me to kind of get you know free for a little bit of that. And so my, the first book is sort of a reflection and that's Oryx and Crake. Which I think I think that was published in like two thousand three or something. I mean, it was it's it older. It's very old. Mm-hmm. I was actually really surprised, um, and and we read this 
uh, all, all of us read this book on, in the book club we're in, but I was really surprised after I read it. And when I found out what year it was published, I was shocked because yeah. it just seems so prevalent and so yeah. relevant today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so much of science fiction is sort of the dystopian stuff. The book club read The Plague. Yeah, I was just going to say, anytime we've read stuff lately that's been talking about pandemic type things, it, it just gives me a shiver how like dead on some of the things are. Oh, Yeah, the plague especially. I mean, when yeah. I read the plague, I was like, oh my God. I mean, this is like exactly what is happening right now. Yeah, and Oryx and Craig is sort of a fantasy, but in some ways this whole population thing, all this genetic mutation stuff that's going on. And she, I mean, she's just a, she's just a great, Margaret Atwood is just a great writer. Care about her characters. She knows how to tinker with a plot. You know, there's a sort of a cliffhanger at the end because there are two others. I think the last one came out just a couple of years ago. Maybe it was last year. She makes really depressing topics easy to read, which is. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Too easy, I think, (laughs) in a lot of ways. And I was doing some research because I I was going to talk about Oryx and Craig. Darren Aronofsky was working on, you know who he is? Sure. Yeah, The Wrestler, Requiem for a Dream. That's all Darren Aronofsky. Yeah, yeah. And he was doing a a whole series that got canceled. On this one? Yeah, on on the whole trilogy. And I think they stopped in 2016. He started in 2014 and someone else picked it up, but it's not. It's kind of a no-name thing that's going on so we may see in another year or two since this seems to be the thing with these um you know especially these pay services these streaming services with hulu and amazon and um netflix you know uh they'll pick up a series of books and suddenly you have a series that runs for five six seasons like the like the expanse and foundation trilogy and you know, dump it some money besides uh, into some of these series, too. So it's kind of exciting when a series you recognize gets picked up by these streaming services. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Some of the books I'm going to talk about, I, I didn't understand. I didn't realize it, but they're being picked up, too, on Hulu, actually. Um, the thing that is so great about Atwood is most really great authors is she leaves so much to your imagination. And she mm-hmm. writes in such simple terms. She doesn't feel like she has to over explain everything. But the way she does it, it just resonates with the reader so much. And frankly, um, th- this book, when I read it, it, it in a lot of ways, it was just hor- it was horrifying. I mean, it really creeped me out. A lot of the description. I mean, I could just see it happening. I guess when we read it, it was back in August or September. I can't remember. And I kept thinking, well, this could happen next month. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the things are saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that was that, of course, was a sort of depressing little uh, part of a series of depressing <laughs> reflections. Your book club always has depressing reads. <laughs> the, my students have all said they need Prozac after taking a <laughs> Nothing up, uplifting. They all want a hug after the final exam because... I mean, they're always thought-provoking. Yeah. They're always yeah. sad. Yeah, they're, yeah, I like that. We had some really good discussions, though, about those books, though. I mean, I guess this year, and we can talk about this later, but um, I'm usually drawn more toward 
dystopian novels. Like, I mean, the first real big dystopian novel I read when I was a, in high school was The Stand, which they're just doing an adaptation now. And I loved it. I mean, I just reveled in it, the whole world building and everything. And I just have no desire now to watch The Stand. I, I just don't, I don't want to, I just don't. I'm like, I'm living it. I don't want to watch it or read it, you know? <laughs> Who is it? Is it Mr. Black? What is his, what is the... Randall Flag? Randall Flag. Yeah, yeah, Randall Flag. It's getting really bad press. Oh, is like, it? Yeah. It says they're mm. butchering. I think there was another stand that was horrifying, horrible, not horrifying, horrible previously, and they're yeah. sort of trying to redo it. And they're not. It was a miniseries back like 25, 26 years ago. And like, I think Rob Lowe was in it. Oh, and like Molly Ringwald. Oh, and, the rat in the stand. <laughs> yeah. So weird. I mean, <laughs> the brat pack. That's the brat pack. Yeah. I think the best part of it was the opening scene. Uh, they, they showed the lab where this virus escaped from. And all the people are dead, and they were playing uh, Blue Oyster Cults, Don't Fear the Reaper, like at the very beginning. And I was Lord. like, man, this is going to be great. And then it was just like awful after that. <laughs> <laughs> that is interesting, though, that you bring up, like, you know, with how strange this year has been, there's always been a really big following for apocalyptic stuff, um, dystopian, zombie stuff, end of the world stuff. I wonder if we'll see a shift in I books so. and shows now. Something yeah, so. different could be the year of fantasy. Now it could, could be my time young adult fantasy, which we'll be talking about in like 17 minutes from now. That's a good segue in my second book, which is tales of the city. Maupin's book that he wrote from, I think it was 1978 to 2014. It was appeared in the San Francisco Chronicle in the newspaper. And I'd never read it. It was on, I don't know, I think it was the the BBC put it on the top 100 books. I've seen it on a couple of the lists. It's about a young woman who moves from the conservative Midwest from Cleveland to San Francisco and it's, you know, the sort of gay 70s and all the sex and drugs and all that stuff that are that's going on, but the way he deals with it it is hilarious and the chapters are all like five pages long. It's just these little vignettes. And it's so, so it's like reading short shorts and you fall in love with the characters. They're hilarious. The stuff they say is gets more timely as the books kind of go on because they're still being written throughout the two thousands and stuff. So I really appreciate it. And we, and, and my wife and I started watching the Netflix, Netflix did a series or I think maybe the BBC, somebody did this. No, it might've been PBS did a series and then they had a, they did a remake of it with Elliot page, who was at the time, Ellen page was the, one of the daughters or somebody. And so we were going to watch that. We didn't, but it, you know, the, the way they dealt with it was a similar kind of way. Let me ask you this, because I've been wondering about this. Um, because the way you describe it, it sounds like a very progressive kind of show. But was there were there like conservative elements to the show? I, I'm wondering that because you know the show that really has resonated with a lot of people is, uh, and I know you don't like or you you haven't given it a shot, but it's Shit's Creek on Netflix, and I've really gotten into it. And the show is 
has a bisexual character and he has a relationship with another male. And, but in a lot of ways, it's very conservative. You know, it's like family values, you know, um, the way it ends up, you know, hard work pays off. Family values is what you need to strive for. And that is, was it, I, I don't know if I'm even touching what you're talking about, but was it kind of that way too? I, we only got a few episodes into the show, but the book, I think it uses um, the main character who's coming from really conservative Cleveland, Ohio, as that point of view character who then sort of realizes that not only is there this the kind of titillation of this lifestyle, but these people are just regular people, right? Um, who have struggles and are battling illnesses in some cases and wanting and mar- their marriages are failing and uh, they're falling in love, you know? So to some degree, yeah, it's not like, <clears throat> it's not like it just simply reveled in the kind of sex scene. In fact, there wasn't a heck of a lot of that in the, in the book. There's, there was some in the first couple episodes of the show. Um, but it sort of takes place in the, you know, off stage in a lot of, in a lot of cases. But for me, that was a huge sort of, I don't know, steam valve that I could, could open and laugh. You know, I... A palate yeah. cleanser. Yeah, I would go on the elliptical because I wasn't moving outdoors and just kind of listen to it and have the Kindle there and read along or whatever. And it was nice. And, and while you're describing, maybe conservative in the way I'm trying... Maybe that's not the right way to articulate it, but it's almost like comfort or something that I I don't know. It's funny. The, I think what the entire audience of the series falls in love with is this Miss Madrigal who runs this kind of rooming house and this whole, this whole group of people becomes sort of family with her as this kind of mother figure, you know, it becomes homey, you know, from the start of the collection. Well, it's a novel, you know, it reads sort of like a collection of short stories. Um, but from the beginning of the novel kind of to the end. It does kind of sound like a sitcom made into a book. It does, yeah. We're describing it. Yeah. Yeah. So did you, I was going to say, did you, am I alone in that? Did you experience any of that like this year? I I don't know, just this undercurrent of, hey, it's going to be okay. I'm thinking of like, almost like Schitt's Creek and Ted Lasso, I think was a big show that got real popular and some other ones that, um, I don't know. It seemed like they really resonated with people. I'm not sure they would have resonated as much in other years. Well, it's also interesting because, like, my mom started watching Shit's Creek, and she normally doesn't watch like Netflix series or streaming series because she's still from the age of cable. But there were no cable shows. The age of cable, right? <laughs> I don't have cable, so you've cut the cord. <laughs> I haven't had a cord in a long time. And I actually, I don't watch series very often either. So it is, this this year has been weird for me in that I also feel like I'm not having the normal experience. I really didn't have any work interruption. I am already a homebody. So like, I don't get dragged to bars as much. Well, at all, no bars. But like, switching to seeing my friends online. I mean, I don't want to say I'm getting used to it because that seems even more depressing. But it does kind of feel like that. I feel cooped up because I'm pretty 
you know, reclusive anyway. Like, I don't know, sir, if you remember being on campus, I just close my door and don't leave my space from morning until the time I leave and I'm okay. But being cooped up in a house with the in-laws and all the people and all that stuff can get tough. Because you don't have your space anymore. You do. But when you have a six-year-old, there's no (laughs) doors are not a thing. You can be pooping and (laughs) door swings open. You're like, okay, we're we're doing this. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing. And I have a lot of friends that switch to the work at home like life and and the balance and a a lot of my friends have babies and small kids and it's just like a whole different world but my work has stayed honestly thankfully very much the same we don't work with the general public that much and my industry kept turning so yeah it's weird there are times when it did feel so spookily normal that i would almost forget that a lot of the rest of the world was shut down and then you'd have this moment of oh yeah that stuff doesn't exist and it would be like whoa wait hold on yeah yeah with me i i would come home and so when they shut down our offices i was pretty down i I didn't know how it was going to be and what it ended up being was i would wake up take a shower put on a dress shirt and shorts you know, go into my little closet office, you know, close the door and work all day till like yeah. five and then come out and usually watch something kind of non-brainish, you know, yeah. uh, that night. Yeah. And what was funny to me was, you know, everyone got so, I think everyone got so proficient, like on Zoom and everything else. And I hate to say it this way, but it was kind of novel at the beginning. And I remember everyone had like, you know, funny virtual backgrounds and things like that. And, you know, <laughs> you know, and are people doing virtual cocktail hours? Like, Ooh, this is fun. Yeah. And then in <laughs> September, it was like no virtual backgrounds, no cocktail hours. It was like, can we just end this shit, please? Can we please stop? <laughs> it's kind of like, it's kind of like when a thunderstorm sweeps in and it's like really exciting. And you're like, Ooh, yeah. like, is it going to get bad? Then the sky turns green. And then it's like, it's all very exciting until like your roof is peeling off and you're like, oh, it's no longer fun. <laughs> or it's the nice smell of the rain shower. And then like Mississippi, it would rain for two weeks. Then after day three, you were like, fuck the rain, man. Can we just quit with, <laughs> with the rain? I don't want to smell it anymore. I don't want to. <laughs> is the sun ever going to come out again? Right. I, I don't right. know. Right. And then my last, uh, very quickly, my last one, I do want to talk about this just for a minute because I'm teaching a course in the fall on video game narratives. <clears throat> and so I, so I was doing some research and I read this book. I told Sarah about this because it speaks directly to one of her isms um, when she plays uh, World of Warcraft. They, there's a whole chapter or a section of a chapter on playing together separately, which I think yes. you like to do. Yeah, I do like to do that. But it's called Reality is Broken. It's by a woman named Kate McGonagall. And she has written, she's started as a game designer. And she wrote a book about how video games could can change, like the mentality of video games that we apply to video games can change the world socially. And so she was like laid out some things. Um, she said that games are voluntary 
they're self-motivating, they're self-rewarding, right? All of these kinds of things about games that we keep kind of returning to. And then I found a quote specifically for, for you, Sarah. She talks about blissful productivity. And she says, there is zero unemployment in World of Warcraft. It's fact. Zero wow. unemployment in World of Warcraft. <laughs> and then in that same chapter, she writes, in real life, if someone gave you a task that normally took 500 hours of work to finish and then gave you a way to complete it in half that, you'd probably be, probably be pretty pleased. But in a game <laughs> where the whole point uh, for so many players is to get their hands on as much satisfying work as possible. 250 hours the disappointment. It's true. <laughs> God. And so she applies this sort of painstaking game theory that all of these designers go through. Like, how can we get them to first buy the game and then continue to play this game over and over and over again? I mean, people labor over this. And she says there are ways that we can apply this virtually socially to our lives and not only live happier lives, but start to think about ways to like, she has this whole, she, she started a whole project where people would play a game at work for 10 seconds and earn one grain of rice. And that grain of rice turned into a real grain of rice because of advertisements. And it was starting to feed populations of people in third world countries by people playing a 20 second little video game on mobile. And she taught, and there, you know, there are all these numbers and figures in the book about, you know, how practically, I mean, part of it's pipe dreamy, but how practically she's trying to apply these sorts of things to cultural and social issues. And that book for me was both reflective like I played games to pass the time while I was in this pandemic, but also pretty hopeful, right? I mean, there's a way that you can sort of enjoy some of these narratives and at the same time think about doing something positive. That is interesting talking about like taking that weird self-motivating carrot on a stick mentality from video games and applying it to real life and productivity. I recently found this site called For the Words. Mm-hmm. It's a, a writing program online, but it is set up like just a very simple RPG. Like you have your little avatar and you have monsters in the wilderness that you can challenge. And in order to defeat certain monsters, it's like 200 words, 400 words, 800 ah, words, so words. Motivation to actually get some creative writing done. Yes. And <laughs> like you fight them, you get crafting material, you get quests, you get armor, you get, and I'm like, this is like scratching a deep goblin itch in my brain. And it's really helped me like develop good habits with my writing. Cause that's my worst problem is I, I'm not good at habits. I do like feast and famine for my writing. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed that I've gotten so like habitual now with my writing. There are times when I almost forget to play the game part of it, which is yeah. like huge for me. And I think you could probably apply that in different ways to lots of different things. So you should read this book. Reality is broken. You should read it. I should read it. I bet I would love it. Yeah. And so that's interesting. You know, talking about that because I, before this year, I was, I went back and looked at all the books I had read and I've never been a big fan of nonfiction. I just haven't read a lot of nonfiction. I think Sapiens, you, you mentioned Sapiens on one of our calls. 
and I think Deuce, right? Uh, yeah, Homo Deus. Oh, that's right. You, you had read that too. I haven't read that one. I think Sapiens was probably the only nonfiction book I've read in the last like five years uh, before this year because I normally just read fiction. And um, that is a good one to read, by the way. That book is phenomenal. It's excellent. It totally changed my worldview on, on a lot of different in a lot of different areas. But when I look back, I was really surprised, especially the first part of the year. I read so much nonfiction. Um, but it wasn't like, you know, history of the Civil War or, or anything like that. It was kind of comfort food. Um, the two that I read um, that I really enjoyed, um, and this was at the beginning of the year, actually it was during the uh, the first quarantine when everything went quarantine, was All the Pieces Matter, which is the inside story of The Wire, and the Chris Farley show, which is um, – uh, a biography of Chris Farley, the Saturday Night Live comedian. Both of those were oral histories. You know, they would interview different people involved with the shows or people who knew Chris Farley. And I don't know why, but it was just, I, I couldn't put a, either book down. About The Wire, The Wire is probably my favorite television show. It was a television show on HBO like yeah. 20 years ago or something. Really good. Um, in the two thousand early 2000s. And uh, in a lot of ways, it was a game changer. I mean, I think it was one of the first shows that had a, almost an entire African-American cast, really dealt with inner city, um, which is kind of me saying it right now. It almost seems kind of naive, you know, because yeah. there's so many different shows like that now. But I just adored it. And a lot of it was because it was so narrative driven. Every episode was narr- It was almost like a novel. If you put all the sh- seasons together, it was, it's almost like a novel. Um, and there were so many great quotes and the writing in it was excellent. Like Richard Price, one of the uh, you know famous writer, uh, wrote a couple of seasons and it was just so well done. And to me, it was almost like, here's something I really love and I'm going to go back and I'm going to examine it even yeah. more. The the Chris Farley to me, I, I love Saturday Night Live. I've, I've always been a fan of skit comedy, and you know Saturday Night Live is, is is part of that. But to me, in a lot of way, this this uh, book really dealt with his fall from grace, which I've yeah. always been just kind of really I don't know, just obsessed with in a lot of in a lot of different ways. You know, someone who has everything in the world that they have everything and they just throw it all away. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know why that that appeals to me, especially in this year. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe when everything's just going south, and you see a lot of people like in our country. You know, it's the wealthiest country in the history of humanity, and we're just pissing it all away in so many yeah. ways. Yeah. Um, but it was it was heartbreaking in so many ways, but in a lot of ways, it was very uplifting. His brother actually was one of the authors, and he ended with like. At some point, he wrote this quote where it says, you know, talking about Chris Farley, who could never accept love. You know, he could never. That that was kind of his issue. He could never truly accept that somebody loved him because of the way he was brought up. And he said, this is his brother speaking. When you receive love, it releases you from the things that trouble you. Just knowing that someone cares about you can give you strength and courage. And I, 
I don't know why, but that just kind of resonated with me yeah. in this pandemic. You know, yeah. it's like, yeah, if you, you know, cause you just kept hearing about people that who are struggling with being isolated or struggling with feeling alone and, and things like that. But, you know, if you feel loved, if you feel part of something, then you can really persist. You know, you can, you can have that persistence and that grit to get you through. We love you, Trey. I know you do, Sarah. <laughs> she hates me. I can tell. <laughs> can you? No, absolutely not. So Binti by Okura Four. I love this book. I mean, I loved this book so much. And I think a lot of it is because of what we were talking about earlier. I've always been drawn to dystopian type science fiction, whether it's The Stand or, or books like that. And this was just so optimistic to me. And, yeah. you know, it was all about cooperation, understanding other people, you know, finding solutions to problems. Uh, I mean, there was some cool science fiction elements to it as well. But to me, it was just very optimistic. And I think that's one reason I, I really, really liked it. And I hate to bring up the name, but it really uh, reminded me of Orson Scott Card. I know he's oh. had some some issues, but. But when I read them, I didn't know about these issues, you know, in the early 2000s. Same. Same. Th- there was a lot of optimism in his books, especially Ender's Game and the, the trilogy that followed that having to do with Ender. And about all his books seemed to, to me to deal with communication and understanding and empathy and trying to collaborate with each other and how that was the baseline for for everyone, you know, uh, understanding each other. You might not ever get along, but at least you could understand each other. And that's what Denti reminded me of. And, and I threw in Recursion uh, by Blake Crouch just because the first two-thirds of the book was about as enjoyable experience as I've had this year reading a book. I mean, yeah. it was so fast and so well done. Yeah. And I just, I loved it. I mean, I absolutely adored it. I was like, this is really incredible. I am really enjoying this book. The downfall is, and I don't even want to talk about the last, it's probably not even the last one third, (laughs) probably the last like 50 pages. But, you know, with all time travel books, I think at some point there's going to be some sort of, except for like Back to the Future, I think, which, you know, (laughs) that's the only one I can think of. (laughs) I wrap everything up nicely. There's always going to be some way it's just going to feel clunky. Yeah, it's really hard to stick the landing with time travel. I agree. It was I really, can, the ending was really clunky. I can no longer think about any time travel, anything without recalling, I think it was Infinity War. Whichever I one knew you were going to go there. Yeah, where Ant-Man yeah. says, you mean to tell me that uh, Back to the Future is total bullshit? <laughs> like, <laughs> Here's the right travel, right? I was thinking of hot tub time machine. I think they're trying to they're trying to explain hot and someone's like, just don't think about it. It's okay. Yeah. Just don't yeah. think about it. <laughs> yeah. I think in some ways you can't. I think they kind of work in short stories. Like there's a great Harlan Ellison um short story called um Killer at the End of the World or something, where it's a time travel back to uh Jack the Ripper. There's the Ray Bradbury story where someone goes hunting a T-Rex and steps on a butterfly and the whole future, quote unquote, future is changed. 
they work for short stories, but to maintain that for 400-ish pages gets difficult, I think. I agree. You're, you're going to hit one of those plot gaps or holes at some point in a novel. It just gets so tangled. It's hard to give a satisfying resolution. And to me, I agree. And, and the way he was going through the whole book was it was not going to end well. I mean, it was going to be a complete apocalypse, you know, for the whole world. And he had to find some way to not make it as depressing as we talked about in the rise. Of, it's kind of like the rise of Scott Skywalker when yeah. Ray shot down Chewie. I was like, oh, my God, they're really going to kill Chewie. I can't mm-hmm. believe this is happening. And in one way, I'm like my intellect. I'm like, this is good. This is good storytelling. And I've been in my heart. I'm like, don't kill Chewie for the love of God. No, but it's like you can't you can't do that. Like if you do it, then do it and stick to it. You can't just be like, oh, just kidding. No, it's fine. Everything's fine now. <laughs> we killed Chewie. Just think of all of the Chewie hugging memes for like the next six months that you would see all over Facebook and Instagram. It would be sad. It would be a very the way that they killed him would have been like a crazy moment <laughs> if that stuck. <laughs> exactly. It would almost be like, what? Yeah. Like comedy. First time I saw it, it blew my mind. I think they should have stuck with it. I would have been radical. I mean, I love Chewie, but it was just like a radical move. It was so radical. But, you know, if they could have just like not said he wasn't dead in like the next scene. You know, if they had like gone like. They didn't let you sit with it. They didn't even let you stew. It was like. We Cowards. <laughs> uh, all right. All right. I, I tried to cut you off on your fiction. Sorry, <laughs> I'm done. Go ahead, no. I apologize. I won't take up too much time because uh, it's all very relevant only to kind of like my little niche in the reading world, which is uh, young adult, specifically young adult fiction. But I did have the pleasure of reading two series uh, this year. Uh, I read the Cruel Prince trilogy by Holly Black. It's a contemporary uh, young adult fantasy. Uh, her third installment, Queen of Nothing, was the 2020 uh, best uh, young adult fantasy on Goodreads. And then I also read uh, Six of Crows and Cricket Kingdom duology uh, by Lee Barduco. And I also just read Shadow and Bone, which is the first of her trilogy. Uh, those five books are all being adapted by Netflix this spring. I'm super excited about it. She writes a killer fantasy novel. You would actually probably really like those, Dean, even as young adult fantasy. Yeah, I'm probably going to pick the, at least those up. They yeah. are, um, whereas Cool Prince Trilogy is more like your, I don't want to say they're, they're not written for girls, but I mean, there's always this subset trope that's kind of been prevalent in young adult fiction. It's always either been like the dashing vampire or like the handsome elf. And nowadays it's the mysterious fae prince or king. That's like a whole thing. And it fits in that niche. Um, it does some interesting things with it being contemporary. Usually they take place in a second fantasy world. This time it takes place in our world, sort of Harry Potter style where it's overlaid. She did some pretty cool stuff with that. I liked that her male protagonist was kind of an, a bumbling fool. Normally, the male protagonists in these series are always like all powerful. Mm-hmm. And I liked that. Yeah. But um, as far as the Grishaverse by uh, Lee Bardugo, her stuff is, it's interesting. It's, um, it's not your swords and sorcery fantasy. It's um, 
rifles, um, like bordering on almost the mechanical age. It's like fantasy Russia and the Dutch Republic and Amsterdam. And that's not just limited to young adult. That's a whole subset of fantasy now. Mm-hmm. It, it was it was called the new weird for a while because it didn't really have a time thing. Right. But then with writers like Ken Liu, he started writing like silk punk, which is like the Han Dynasty yes. and some mechanical things going on. Totally fit in that shelf, whatever that is. Because uh, there is a there is like a Chinese equivalent empire in this too that comes in big in uh, in the duology. But uh, I think that Netflix adaptation is going to be killer. Except I really want to know how they fix the the problem, which the, I, I've heard they've got a fix for, is the original trilogy takes place prior to the Six of Crows, and they want to run both storylines concurrent, kind of like The Witcher had that problem, yep, which was a little confusing. It was, and I hated um, the series. You hated The Witcher? I did. It was way cheesier than I expected it to yeah, be. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't like it either. I couldn't get into it at it's all. Such- Guilty pleasure I mean, of mine. I love the books. I love the games. I was like reading the graphic novels when they came out with. I was like, Superman's going to do it. It's going to be cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I did enjoy watching Henry Cavill, but that might have just. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sure. okay, I'll, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. He's a dashing man. He's a, a very attractive man. But what they did with Dandelion, I, he's just a goober. And his oh, song What's his name horrible. in the um, show? I don't Some remember. Of the, Jay. So disappointing. <laughs> Sorry, Dean. Witcher a coin or whatever the hell. <laughs> toss, a, toss a coin off your Witcher's cheeks or whatever the meme was. It was like at the strip club. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, well, I think we have to we have to call, we have to say goodbye. Oh. We have to end with a laugh on a high note. That's always a good ending note. The Pup is produced on that series of tubes we all know as the internet from the studios at Underdark, which doubles as my basement and office. You can listen in at iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, where we post new episodes every Monday. You can also find us on straylightmag.com, where we publish new stories, poetry, art, and of course, podcasts. Thanks for listening to The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things narrative, story, and publishing. 